1: To Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art, criticism, and fandom, paying attention to the way that these films have shaped our imaginations. Hopefully, along the way, we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today, we are stopping at red lights and using our blinker to indicate our turns, even though we're in the middle of the car chase that is the 54th film of the canon, 2014's Big Hero 6. Disney famously purchased Marvel in 2009, and naturally, Bob Iger, a well-known proponent of Synergy, immediately encouraged exploration of Marvel properties for adaptation. Don Hall, who co-directed this, he just liked the title of Big Hero 6. Uh, It's a very little-known property, probably even less well-known now, since if you search for the original comic, you're more likely to find the Magna adaptation or the ongoing comic released after the movie. Uh, but not that any of that really matters, because like Frozen before it, there's very little of the source material in the movie. However, it does have an after credit scene and a Stan Lee cameo, so it brings the Marvel touch to Disney and the Disney touch to Marvel. With me, as always, to talk it over is a man who hasn't done laundry in six months. One pair lasts in four days. He goes front, he goes back, he goes inside out, then he goes front and back. It's both disgusting and awesome. He's Michael Farmer. how's it going josh oh yeah it's going (laughs) and uh this month we have a a very special guest host of the sectarian review one of my favorite podcasters in the world because he's always using his big brain to look for a new angle and is not giving up on you welcome to the show danny anderson
2: (laughs) that's about the nicest thing anybody said to me in in months Uh, it's very (laughs) very nice josh thanks for asking me to be on the show it's great to be here
1: yeah, well, I felt like this one. I, I don't really know. I know that you are a, a not a fan of Disney in general, but I felt like if we were ever going to get you on, maybe this maybe this was our our door in. Um, is that right? <laughs> um, I you know I have seen.
2: Period. I think I'm just of that generation that was like in Disney's like dead zone. You know, it was like pre Little Mermaid when I was growing up and. Like, they like we didn't grow up with Disney in the way that people before me and after me did, right? So, I don't think I ever developed a taste for it. Um, once I had kids, I've seen many, if not most of the films, right? And you know, I enjoy it well enough. I, 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 talking to Michael, I'm a little less critical about things than I used to be. Uh, and so I, I found many things to like about Disney, and particularly this movie. It's really fun.
1: Yeah, it's, I, I agree. It's really fun. And it is, um, it's, it's a little different, um, than than what we've seen before um i don't know if that's that's specifically because of the comic adaptation or just uh the era of disney that we're in michael has called it the imperial era (laughs) before um which i think is is right um it's just that they're they're just sucking in everything to themselves and and uh, putting their own stamp on it so what do you think michael is there uh is there a through line oh other than them just just absorb the borg
0: era maybe it's the, just them absorbing the
1: entire world
0: i wondered if this uh if this counts as a marvel cinematic universe movie
2: that actually crossed my mind um it is in a um it is in an alternate marvel universe it is canonically oh i forget earth is it one, 14123 i think i yeah. oh okay and, um, and so it is like in marveldom uh it does actually take place in the multiverse uh and so um i was actually honestly with the doctor strange movie i was surprised that this didn't and if it did maybe it did make an appearance that i missed but uh i was surprised that they didn't uh, do a reference to this
0: yeah i didn't think about i didn't think about it being an alternate universe i just knew there was no san fran Sokyo in the yeah. uh, in the marvel is it what's the number it's supposed to be eight eight one eight Whatever the uh, whatever the mainstream universe in the MCU
1: is. Oh, I forget. Um, I, I yeah, should know that. I feel like it's six one two or something like that, but I don't remember. I don't remember the numbers. Six one two is the area code
0: for Minneapolis. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I was
1: uh, yeah. I must
0: have been confusing that. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, if it is if it is the uh, if it is if it is part of the MCU, you've got you've got the thing that's going to connect the MCU to the disney animated canon right like you've 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 got your um you you've you've got your saint elsewhere snow globe connection here
2: (laughs) yeah absolutely i um i was thinking about that and really i thought the villain of this movie worked better than in most mcu movies uh frankly (laughs) and uh and i thought they did a really good job of really kind of replicating the formula that makes those mcu movies so enjoyable and and i thought this really plot wise hung right in there if they, had this been live action it very well could have might as well have been an mcu movie
0: would you say would you say that it fits the um it fits the mold of mcu villains being essentially just versions of the heroes like alternate versions of the heroes
2: yeah that's one way right and he has like a motivation that's believable right there, there's a a personal vendetta that you actually sympathize with uh so in that way yeah he does feel like um killmonger uh from black panther right and and yeah you have a a, a really uh, a good yeah negative image of the hero of the movie
0: but then you also have it, it also fits in with the the pattern that Disney had been doing the last few movies, and we continue to do at least through Zootopia, where the the villain seemed like a good guy the whole time, and then you know there's this big reveal two thirds of the way through the movie that oh I, I, actually the person you thought was a hero isn't a hero at all. Whether it's King Candy or whether it's um, whether it's Prince Hans or whether it's whoever it is in Zootopia, I can't remember, but I know that that's the uh, I know that that's the twist in Zootopia as well. Um, spoiler alert.
1: yeah that's right the the that that does seem like the the trope that they're using over and over again uh in this era um which I felt like this one was a little more uh little better done than uh hans um i know we talked we talked last month on frozen about how there's like no foreshadowing whatsoever um and I don't really feel like there's foreshadowing here either um you think the guy is dead and then then he comes back in the third act as the villain um uh, I knew – I didn't
0: know he was going to be the villain. I knew there was no way he was going to be dead because why would you hire James Cromwell to do a six-minute part, you know, thankless with no character development whatsoever? So I figured, Mm -hmm. oh, well, it's it's James Cromwell. He's got to be back. I I figured he wasn't dead. I didn't know that he was going to be the villain. But that's also like a Doylist explanation of it rather than a Watsonian. So in terms of, like, what, what's actually been laid out in the movie, I don't think there's a whole lot of hint to it.
1: Yeah. Well, other than, like, I mean, I do think you're right that, like, um, these movies are well enough put together that if you're introducing someone uh, in the first act and then killing them, uh, there's usually going to be some reason for that. Like, they're, like the, it's not just going to be an inciting incident. Like, his brother dying would have been an inciting incident enough without the the uh the per, the professor also dying so i do feel like that in that sense there is a little bit more you know if you're familiar with the way you know modern storytelling works that that you might pick up on you might pick up on that
0: yeah, you you uh, usually have one character die of pms but not two have i told you my new my new acronym pms
1: no <laughs> protagonist mentor syndrome <laughs> deadly they do um they they uh, while we're on this uh topic here they they do a little bit of a um a uh a red herring by um introducing uh the idea that that in the comics it's always the uh you know the corporate guy <laughs> who's the bad guy um and in the is, mcu I, right i mean what's
0: that you know, also in the mcu you look at um the iron man movies you look at ant-man like it's it's frequently it's frequent the supervillain in the in the MCU movies is is also frequently a, a CEO
1: yeah um yeah. So anyway, like uh, they they there's some misdirection there, which is actually um, my my daughter was was calling things out as this movie went along, which is always always fun to me that she's like learning and picking these things up. Um, and she she definitely thought even before they introduced that idea, um, that it was the uh, you know, the corporate guy who who had, who had done it. So it, well, he you know, was it, even he was even
2: drawn or animated. With with a face that just looks like a villain. <laughs> I don't know how to describe his face. Um, uh, I would use a word that I shouldn't use on the network to describe his face, right? Uh, but he uh, I'll <laughs> let you know your imagination run wild, I suppose. Uh, but he uh, yeah, he has this um really interesting face that he uh is um uh blessed with in this movie that really tries to sell the fact that he's the villain.
0: Yeah. Oh, he's also played by Alan Tudyk who was the villain in um was the villain in uh and Ralph. Oh, okay. And also I believe like a secondary villain in Frozen. Is that am I way off on that? Is he the Weaselton guy? I think so. I, I oh, think I I'm didn't. not making that up. So so <laughs> it's <a> like <laughs> they're definitely they're definitely setting us up to to think that he's the bad guy. Yeah, he's the Duke of Weaselton in, okay. in Frozen. That's funny. So that, that guy really didn't have a chance of not being the villain, except he wasn't the villain, which was a nice <laughs> twist, I suppose. Finally, he somebody st- standing up for the tech entrepreneur. Yeah, I think he was like a
2: secondary villain. He's definitely not made out to be uh, a, a likable character, right? His actions are what sets all of this in motion, so he's not he's not free of critique by the movie. Just uh, so it is a little bit still in the spirit of the Marvel tradition of making uh, CEOs into villains, right? But
1: yeah. So the thing that I I found actually interesting about that whole thing is. The the reason they think the CEO is the bad guy is because Fred is himself a huge um, comic book fan, and he uses they use the comics as kind of a plot point or, or like an like a there's a little bit of exposition b- via the comic medium itself, which I feel like is a thing. Um, I know that this was also done in. Um, Unbreakable, like in that series of movies like they're they're in a comic book, but like there's also comics in the comic book like it's a very kind of meta thing you know, like he's using the 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 comic book stories to explain you know how villains and and heroes work um, i think uh, I, I can't remember if um, I feel like there's another recent um, movie that does the same sort of thing where like they're they're using the fact that comics exist as kind of a, uh, a signpost for the characters themselves to know where they are in the story.
2: Yeah. It's honestly, it's kind of a variation on what Wes Craven did in scream uh, where the movies themselves uh, become the template for, you know, real life actions. And that's how people come to understand the machinations of the world is the way that they've, Come to expect them in, in in this case, comic books. And so, yeah, I thought that that was a really interesting aspect of this movie, too, particularly given the kind of meta quality of this being a Marvel property. Uh, And so it's almost like Marvel has established the pattern for how this story needs to play out.
1: Wondering, and I, I don't have a good answer for this. This is a real wonder. Um, in the older movies, when we used to, you know, when we when we went through those um, that were based on fairy tales, obviously fairy tales have a bit of a template too. Is there the same sort of thing where where characters in a fairy tale come to recognize they're in a fairy tale, and all use the fairy tale as a guideline to know? Okay, this is our origin or this is what we should do next or this is who we should suspect or or whatever, that sort of thing.
0: You you kind of get that in Beauty and the Beast, right? In in the opening song in Beauty and the Beast, Belle is reading this fairy tale and says that you know, she meets Prince Charming but doesn't realize it's him yet. And it's not exactly the same thing because she doesn't say, Hey, that's just like my situation, although it is actually just like her situation. But that kind of lets the audience in on the the kind of layered Fairy tale um, approach, but I'm it, I'm having trouble thinking of one that's quite as metafictional, blatantly metafictional as as the comic book thing is here. Danny, can you? I, I know that you haven't watched all of these with us, but do you? Can you think of a? Can you think of a fairy tale Disney movie that does that same thing?
2: Boy, I really cannot. I'm honestly, I know that Disney's always. I mean, they have their own kind of somewhat sanitized takes on the fairy tales right and so on some level the original fairy tales might do more of that than what disney would have been willing to do with them uh if that makes any sense yeah i can't think of
1: one hmm. i know in Luca, uh, which is a which is a more modern um pixar one you know but there's there's a there's a reference to like pinocchio within luca the kind of um I don't know, like those, those stories don't exactly mirror each other, but there's a, there's a little bit of mirroring that happens, you know, between Pinocchio and Luca. So, um, something like that, maybe, but it is interesting
2: though, this, you can almost look at this movie as a, now that you brought up traditional Disney movies and their source material being these kind of folk tales and fairy tales. Um, you could almost look at this movie as a stark dividing line to the prevalence of comic book intellectual properties as serving that purpose uh, as if we didn't already know that, but this is almost like (laughs) the culture admitting (laughs) that comic books are our new fairy tales and our new kind of really kind of moral lessons. I mean, fairy tales carried with it those kind of moral lessons and now comic books are doing that or at least the comic book properties. I don't know how many people actually still read comic books literally, but the comic book properties, uh, they actually are kind of, Take, have taken the place of these fairy tales and these kinds of uh, like aspirational uh, stories.
0: Right, right. And and I, I mean now now I guess is the time for me to make my once an episode complaint about mass cult and folk culture and all that stuff, which I know I, people are probably getting tired of hearing that particular rant. So I'm not going to do it. Um, other than to point out that there there is a big difference between actual folk tales and mass-produced culture
2: no exactly right and, and so i mean it, it, this movie then becomes an occasion to think about that difference and what it means and and the influence that you know marvel has on our sense of not only the way their stories should unfold but the kind of rightness and wrongness of certain actions within those stories
0: but um if i can push back on my own point for just a minute um pinocchio not a folktale right pinocchio is a is a series of i I guess it's a children's book but it's a it's really a series of children's stories that were first published in a newspaper not too unlike a comic book so i i we probably shouldn't draw too too hard of a line there The, the the dynamic we're talking about in terms of the source material has existed from basically the very beginning
2: yeah, and, and like Winnie the Pooh and Alice in Wonderland, right? These all have more kind of like intellectual property uh, origins as well.
0: Right, right. But I, I, I was thinking Pinocchio in particular because it was serially published in Italian newspapers. It, it you know, it's not a comic book because there's not, you know, it's not primarily te- uh, art uh, drawings, but it it, it has a, a similar vibe, I think. I don't know if I talked about this when we read when we talked about Pinocchio, but I did read that book for that episode, and that book is terrible and bizarre, and um, I'm sure a lot of comic books are much better than it.
2: He like don't if I remember. I went to a conference
0: presentation about Pinocchio. Doesn't he get hung at the? <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's brutal, right? He does, and he also kills Gemini Cricket. So Disney has been uh, Disney has been defanging
1: intellectual property and fairy tales from the very beginning. That's right. And that, that was early enough in this podcast and I thought that we'd have a lot more um, to say about you know the the source material versus the movie itself. So I think at that time I was still trying to keep up with um, you know because uh, what Pinocchio is only it's the um, second movie. Yeah, only two. I was gonna say three, but I was like, no, I think it's only second. Yeah, it's only the second one in. So I was, you know, I was still kind of on it as a podcast. I, I, I got to yeah.
0: say that book is the reason I stopped doing that. Because I, I was going I was definitely gonna read read the source material, but I got halfway through Pinocchio and said, I can't do this. Not for not for no money. You know yeah. what I mean? Like if I got paid to do the podcast, <laughs> I might read Pinocchio. Ooh, that book was bad. <laughs> Have either of you to bring it back to the subject at hand? Have I? Have either of you read the Big Hero Six carto- uh, comic that this is based on?
2: I have not. Um, I actually I knew of it, but like like uh, Josh was saying, it's it's quite minor. It, it, it's it doesn't really have many much legs, and so I, I've never come across it.
1: Yeah, there was there was a time when I I was subscribed to. Um, marvel's version of netflix uh it's called marvel unlimited where you can you know read as many comics as you want um for a for a monthly price and at that time i i can't remember if i read the entire series or not there's actually there were two i don't this is going to get way into the weeds but there were two different big hero six series the the original original i think is not available anywhere it may be on there now but it wasn't at the time um the second one I think was just a mini series of maybe like you know four or five comics and um but it is it's very very different um than this movie for sure it really is basically just the name <laughs> it's the. <same>. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it takes place in Tokyo, which I guess is why they did San Francisco, is just to, you know, to, to pay some homage to that. Oh, wait, does it doesn't
0: take place. I, th- I assume that San Fransokyo was invented for the comic. And th- and that's why the movie. So why would they not just set it in Tokyo? Uh, it, it, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I, I mean, I think I imagine they wanted it to be. Feel like it's in, I mean, an American experience, right? But, um, but they actually wanted to kind of capture some of the the Tokyo aspect of it. So they created this, basically this multiverse of um, that that contains a place that's. I think what I read about it was it's kind of implied. But not necessarily stated overtly in the movie that that San Francisco was basically re, in this version of San Francisco, it was basically rebuilt by Japanese immigrants after the 1906 earthquake. Oh, interesting! Um, it, it took on its new name that way. So there's like kind of an interesting backstory uh, of the kind of marriage of um, Japanese and American cultures there with, with San Francisco, which. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: I really liked the fact that they did not explain any of the kind of cultural background. So there's all sorts of stuff in San Francisco that starting with the existence of the city itself that is not ever explained and you know, you just kind of dig your way through it when you're watching the movie and I really I really appreciated that. There's a couple points in the movie where I, I felt like they did have a character just explain something that the, the audience should have been able to pick up on. So I, I really liked it when they didn't do that. The the Other than the name, the other thing that they didn't explain was when Baymax goes up into the air to, to scan to, to figure out who who the man in the uh, Kabuki mask is, there's these just like – I, I don't know, I guess you would call them gondolas, just kind of floating through the air. And it's never explained what those are. And I love that it's never explained that just for whatever reason, it's a popular pastime in San Francisco to, to float on a kind of mechanized gondola.
1: Yeah,
2: like robot fighting at the beginning, right? It's just a world where
0: <laughs>
2: where where this is what happens, right? And you just kind of get used to the world.
0: Yeah, and I I I think that's a much better way to build the world than to to have every little aspect of it described uh, to the to the audience. It shows a certain amount of trust in your audience that sometimes these movies don't ha- always have.
2: Agreed. Yeah,
1: I think that's more of the. Uh, I agree, and it, and it makes the it makes the movie feel very lived in, and it, it's um it's again this this sort of Thing the era that we're moving into with Disney, where these these movies, obviously they've always been movies and they've always been released uh, in theaters. But there's something just more cinematic, I guess if you could use that word, about about the the modern Disney movies. Um, whereas the the old ones seem to kind of stand apart and be, you know, their their own sort of things. The new ones really do. Um, you know, like Danny said, like if it was filmed live action, like it, the the plot, the way it's filmed, everything beat for beat, really just feels like a, you know, a cinematic movie.
2: Yeah, I agreed. Um, I particularly noticed the the opening sort of establishing shots of San Francisco, right? Uh, The um, Just the beauty of the city. And actually kind of, it it appears just after we've seen the Magic Kingdom. Uh, And it really does feel like another Magic Kingdom. And then we kind of get into it. And it really takes a lot of time developing the the setting uh, visually. And I thought that that was really great. And there was one, speaking of visuals, there was one piece of animation that I thought was just, fantastic um there was it was when um hero was following baymax trying to catch him when baymax is looking for the the microbots uh and and he's trying to catch him he's following through the streets um hero wanders through this really busy street where everybody's walking there is so much moving detail in that crosswalk scene that it is actually like artistically very impressive
0: yeah the the animation really top to bottom is, is amazing but you're right the way they have animated the city to feel alive is pretty remarkable I mean yeah, it's, it's, it's not for nothing that you don't see a lot of cities in the early days of animation right because c- cities are so busy that um, you would notice if they were eerily still so the the fact that they can um, they can put it in they can put San Francisco here with so much detail is impressive Josh, I cut you off. What were you saying?
1: Uh, no, you, it it's not a cutoff. But um, I, it was interesting that Danny said it's, it's right after you see the Magic Kingdom because that was the first comment from my kids on this movie was, you know, the Magic Kingdom, and then you, you're looking at San Francisco, and they they said it's drawn just the same way as the castle is. <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, it's that very like photo realistic three D style. You know, just like the the opening castle is. Um, but, yeah, as far as just the beauty of the of the shots and the establishing shots, the one that really jumped out to me is like, oh, this is like a like a film, you know, not just like a movie is at the uh, at the funeral. There's a moment where you see like the first umbrella pop up and then all the other umbrellas follow. And it just I don't know, just something about that shot just felt very like, oh, this is like, a, you know, that's that's not something you normally see in like a in an animated movie. That's something you see more in like a you know, I don't know, like a Scorsese film or something, you know, like a real establishment of mood by by something like that, you know?
2: Yeah. And also, I would say that a lot of those moments take their cues from uh, comic book movies that we've seen before. There was a lot of the first the sam Raimi spider-man i thought i saw Mm. Um, the 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 robot battle for one thing felt like peter parker's wrestling match in a lot of ways right and um, Mm -hmm. and then in that in the funeral scene um for monk that um josh is talking about there really evokes some of those kinds of like quiet tragedy tragedy you know hero building scenes from a movie like spider-man yeah
0: yeah that's a good that's a good point And it owes something um, to Blade Runner, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah. Yeah, with the. It's a happier version of technology existing (laughs) in human games, right? Um, Happier than Blade Runner? Runner? Wait a second. that was actually kind of i I always have in the back of my mind if what if they want to complain about this movie what am i going to come up with um there is a bit of a techno utopianism to it that that doesn't sit right with me but uh but yeah absolutely there is a this advancement of robot technology into all aspects of life is is pretty remarkable and very much like blade runner
0: yeah and well and it also reminded me if you were making a film version of uh Oh gosh! What's the William Gibson Neuromancer?
2: Hmm. Yeah, you should have uh, Gilmore on to talk about that. He loves that stuff. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I
0: I read Neuromancer for a, a guided topics I was doing with a student. And I did not care for it. I thought, oh, Nathan's yeah. teaching this.
1: I'm I'm not familiar with it. What are, What are we talking about right now?
0: <laughs> Neuromancer. Gosh, I'm trying to think if I can even give you a plot summary, but it's a it's a futuristic it's a futuristic world in which several major cities have expanded to the point that they all have become one city. It's called the sprawl, I believe. And um people it's it's a pre-internet book that nevertheless kind of predicts our cyber space involvement with one another. Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, so in that way, it has the, um, the qualities of a future, futuristic dystopia while
0: maintaining this kind of optimism
2: about it all. And I think that that's actually a really interesting thing about it.
0: Yeah, it's it's shinier than than Neuromancer or Blade Runner, but it does, it, it kind of, it, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, bear with me, Treasure Planet, um, which a, a movie that neither Josh nor I really cared for that much, but, uh, in that it, it takes these kind of tropes where you would see a lot of decay and rust and it makes them not decayed and not rusty.
2: Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah. The other thing here is like the, the, the robots really, um, they're they're not the problem. You know, like it's it's really a, it's it remains a human story. So like in a you know, in, in some of those, you know, technology dystopia type things, it's um you know, like I mean like Ultron, you know? <laughs> like right, or well or, or um or Terminator. Or Terminator, right? Yeah, you like you think that they're here to, to save us, and then it, it turns out that they're not. Or I mean, The Matrix is that way. Everything, you know. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that are that way, right? Where it's the the AIs have have reached a level of where they've uh you know moved from being enslaved by humanity to enslaving humanity or, or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm sure both of you could speak more intelligently on this than I can. But um, in this in this movie, there's that moment where um where hero. Uh, tries to turn Baymax into exactly that kind of robot, you know, mm. and um, Baymax is having nothing to do with it um, until Hero literally like rips his heart out and <laughs> makes him, makes him, uh, makes him be that. But then, uh, you know, the, the, the rest of the, the Hero 6 crew come in and, and put his heart back in. Um, so I, I don't know. And even the bad guy, you know, like it's, it, there. Th- those robots are are completely mindless, you know, it's his mind that is, that is the terror, you know? So I, I don't know. There's something, this, this movie is is definitely not telling that kind of dystopian tale. Yeah. Um,
0: you, you get something closer to the Isaac Asimov robot stories, right? Where the, the robot is programmed not to be able to hurt anybody and, and sticks with it. Mm-hmm. The, the Asimov stories, if you're used to, um, If you're used to the kind of Terminator view of technology, the Asimov stories can be kind of shocking because uh, while they're not uniformly positive, they are much more optimistic about the role of uh, technology in the future than I think most science fiction is.
2: And that's another um, little narrative element of the of the world building. That is right at the beginning where we find out that robot fighting is illegal, right? Uh, it's sort of an underground thing that you're not supposed to put robots to this kind of like violent use, right? And, and, and that's what Hero is doing at the beginning of the movie for money. It's um, these underground <laughs> robot fighting clubs. Uh, it's equated to like dog fighting or something, right? And so, um, yes, so robots are held, I mean, kind of like almost sacred in this world.
0: I thought they were allowed to fight them. They just weren't allowed to bet on them.
2: That's a good point. Not allowed to fight for money. I suppose that's true. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a good point.
0: Good correction.
2: <laughs> I don't know how that changes my observation. For sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't. I don't either. You're right. that the, the Yeah, there's not a lot of questioning of the robot itself, for better or for worse. Yeah. Well, we should talk about the robot at the center of this movie, Baymax. Did you guys want to hug him?
2: <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting solution to the, the problem of the uncanny valley, right? Uh, you make him like a big marshmallow um, and, and very fluffy, and therefore he he's non-threatening and doesn't give you that kind of uneasy feeling of, too much humanness right um <laughs> and so yeah it, it's a really interesting um like solution to that problem given uh and i forget the brother's name the the inventor of hero of uh, of uh, of uh, baymax uh he wanted it to be for health reasons and so people have to be honest about their pain levels and things like that so he had to make it Uh, a comfortable conversation for them to have
0: there's a there's a kind of dark aspect to that that the movie doesn't interrogate at all which is that this robot is clearly going to put every physician in the country out of business (laughs) you know what i mean
2: yeah and there's no like medical privacy in this world (laughs) (laughs) he looks at you and say you need some uh, antihistamines right now right (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah yeah I, I did wonder about that. The <laughs> the the voice is done by Scott Adsit, who I really only knew as Pete Hornberger from 30 Rock. Um, and nothing in the Pete Hornberger role would have made me think, yeah, let's cast him as the fluffy, lovable healthcare robot in Big Hero 6. <laughs> my God, what a great performance from Adsit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you could say anything bad about Baymax. He is, he is the, the heart of the movie and... Um, yeah just adorable and and a lot of really great uh physical comedy and um when he's on screen especially at the beginning you know he moves so slow um they kind of get rid of that by by the end when he's upgraded and stuff but you know like it really slows the movie down uh in a way that's very enjoyable you know
0: hilarious scene when they're in the police station and he's leaking yeah. yeah (laughs) And they they, they take so much time for that gag, and it's funnier and funnier and funnier. And they're going to do something very similar in Zootopia. Um, yeah. But I think it might actually be funnier here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it
2: is very funny. And he's, like, designed – I mean,
0: obviously there's an element –
2: I mean, Disney isn't going to make this and not think about toy sales, right? Sure. Um, So he's he's designed on some level uh, to be a, a great toy. And he works both as like a robot you could buy, but also as a a cushy doll, right, that you could sort of cuddle up with. And so, um, it really is it really is a, a marvelous creation. And yeah, there is. Victoria a, said a... she
0: needed to get a a Baymax, and I said, <laughs> look, I have a Baymaxian physique.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Baymaxian, that's hilarious.
0: <laughs> I'm a man of Baymaxian proportions. you were about to say something danny
2: um no no i was just i was just uh i don't remember what i was going to say it wasn't important but yeah it was something about just sort of the, the he's such a terrific creation um for kids right it, it's a it's a really non-threatening and uh and fun creation and you're right the the comedic timing the let me deflate myself uh so i can fit through this window and his inability to understand fist bumps there's a lot of really great physical comedy in it i
0: i think um i think the performance and 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 you know frankly the um the character design too probably owes a good bit to big bird
2: Mm. I can see that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's yeah that's yeah. good, Michael. <laughs> Which
2: could be really threatening. I mean a bird that giant, you know, it's like it <laughs> yeah. could be Mothman, right? It could be Mothman. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> but <laughs> like
0: but who in the world, if they encountered Big Bird, knowing what they know about Big Bird, wouldn't want to hug him, right? And and right. I think I think ninety percent of that has to do with um Carol Spinney's performance as as big bird and and so i i think they're they're playing on that here with baymax as well and and baymax even more huggable than big bird to be fair yeah although you can see how he would also be scary just because he is so large and so inhuman like there's nothing there's nothing about him that looks like a human being even it's it's funny the the scene at the end where baymax sacrifices his life or whatever life isn't really the right word sacrifices himself for hero um there's this extent there's this extended shot where you're looking into Baymax's face as if you were seeing something human in it, except there is nothing human in it. It's just two circles in a line. <laughs> you know, like they didn't do anything to make it look more human for that scene. And yet it still works. I don't know what to make of that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's your, I mean, you've, you've mentioned this on the show many times, Michael, it's the, it's that uh, Scott McLeod theory, right?
0: Oh, that that because he doesn't look realistic at all, you can kind of you can kind of project into him whatever you yeah. want. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, and I mean the whole movie has been him like caring for hero, right? And, and so we've seen him do nothing but acts of kindness, right, for the entire movie. So you just come to love the being that is so kind um, and. And all the hugs that go along with his kindness. You know what I mean? Just fit with his body type.
0: I did find myself wondering find at the it. end why he didn't just say, Hey, don't worry, hero, I'm taking out my computer chip and I'll put it in the <laughs> I'll put it in the um I'll put it in the fist and everything will be fine. Why he let yeah. him think that he was gonna die?
1: He had to. He had to. Use, he, well, it's it's. Uh, well, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it has to be a death and resurrection story, you know. Like that's I mean, true. A, yeah. We we need that, and and he he. I mean, he even uses the Jesus line, like I will always be with you, you know. He didn't say even until the end of the age, but you know, we <laughs> could, could kind of complete it. <laughs>
0: I was thinking E. T. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I don't know. There's there's a real way in which you know those those stories, you know, and I uh, they they're everywhere, you know. Like if you're looking for them, you you see them everywhere. And I don't know if it's uh, because we're looking for them or that that you find them, you know, you find what you're looking for, or if it I you know I tend to think that it's it's more there there's something deep within the the. The very bones of creation itself you know that makes us long for stories like that and so you know we can't you just can't help but but keep creating them over and over and over again
2: yeah i will say that watching this movie and, and i saw it when it first came out and um and i just recently watched it again for this and it, really the connections to the mcu are really strong now right yeah and yeah it, honestly, it
0: predicts a lot of stuff that happens in the mcu
2: yeah, and, and I feel with all down to the multiverse, right? In the latest Doctor Strange movie, and and I feel like this kind of like drew a line for me as to why I find I really like the Doctor Strange movie a lot. That's actually one of my favorite MCU's. But the new, the new that
0: one or the, the the first one? The new one, yeah.
2: Oh. I like the first one too, but the new one I really like because it's a horror film. It's and a so, horror. <laughs> it's I, a did, I did not like it, although I liked some of the
0: horror elements of it.
2: Yeah, um, but. I, um, I will say, though, that I, I find myself increasingly dissatisfied by the MCU, um, and I think some of it has to do with the fact that it, it refuses to accept a sad ending. Like, yep. It refuses to accept death. And, and it, A, makes a joke about death and then makes it so it doesn't matter with this multiverse. You could just pull a new whoever into your universe, right? And then they've been like a new Loki, whatever, you know, And we lost yep. Loki, we like Loki, we'll just grab another Loki. Uh, and so it, it cheapens life to me in a lot of ways. And the new Thor movie I thought was borderline insufferable about doing this. Um, and so although I found much to a joy about that movie, I did kind of roll my eyes at a lot of it. It works as a children's movie, right? It works as Big Hero 6. Um, But when you're trying to tell more sophisticated films or stories in these other Marvel films, I just feel like you're treating us like children. (laughs) And and I feel like this movie illustrated to me why I'm increasingly dissatisfied with the MCU.
0: Yeah, it's it's part of a, a, a broader cultural problem, I think, which is no story can ever be over. So it's not just that it can't have a sad ending. We've got to keep it going. Keep it going, yeah. keep it going, keep it going, because it's all property, right? It's, it's People will keep buying the tickets, so we got to keep it going. People love Loki, so let's do a mediocre Loki television series, which everyone <laughs> will pretend to like. I shouldn't say they're pretending to like it. I, I I, actually really hate it when people say that if if you like something I don't like, you must be pretending. I, I don't think people are pretending. I think they, they really liked that show, but I do think it was mediocre but the multiverse just makes it easier and easier to do it. And I can only assume that eventually you're going to get some big, high profile MCU flops and Iron Man will be brought back through the multiverse. Right. Cause, yeah. cause so far that's been the major death that has, has stayed a death.
2: Yeah. 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 I, I agree with that. And, um, no, I totally, um, I find it like a really cheap out, uh, myself. And then, the comics have done this for years i mean people have died and been resurrected through not just multiverse that you know i read dr strange comics maybe that's another reason i like the movie but um but i uh the magic is always bringing somebody back right and so um yeah i, I uh comics have done this for years but it's i don't know somehow really i don't know, it's just increasingly i feel almost nihilistic uh, the way that Thor handled it, this this last Thor movie, and um, um, whereas it works in Big Hero Six, that's what we're talking about here. But
0: Big Hero yeah. Six doesn't do it via a multiverse, right? It does it because he's a robot and he, whatever he 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 rescues his computer chip. I how does he? how does he shoot his hand off if he removes his computer chip now that I think about it? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a little hand waviness there, but you know, <laughs> I think this is really interesting. I, I wonder if you guys can help me square this circle a little bit, because Danny, I, I hear and understand your critique, um, about the, the kind of denial of death. Um, I mean, for a long time in the, uh, that I mean, that's been a long time critique of the Marvel movies, you know, like for, for years and years and years, um, that, that that nobody of uh, really dies, um, you know, even even all the way back to uh, you know Agent Phil was like the first one to ever die, and then he continued to live on in um, Agents of Shield. You that's know? true. Right. I think I about it. it's been it's been years and years, that, you know, that critique's been around. Um, and so I agree with that critique. Um, but then there's you know the thing I was talking about about like we love resurrection stories. Um, and I think largely because, you know, like I said, that's, that's the, at the center of, mm. of uh, creation and the center of history, God made, made the world in such a way, um, you know, that he always knew that, you know, Christ would die and, and, and come back to life. And, you know, that's, that's the center of our, of our, of our universe in a lot of ways. So like, what's the, you know, what's the difference between a really good, uh, resurrection story and, and you know one that that reminds us or, or echoes you know the christ story and and this denial of death that you're talking about like what's you know like like where where do you draw those lines like how do you I, figure that out
2: like in an ideal world like like i'm talking about. so i'm not I, i'm thinking hypothetically here right i can't think of like an example example where the act of resurrection is accomplished through something miraculous and not mundane and and i I think that with the existence of the multiverse, everybody's less special because there's an infinite number of me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And where if there's only one of me and I die and I come back through some sort of divine intervention, then it actually means something because the possibility of loss was there. With, With the multiverse stuff, it's almost like there's no possibility of loss. And so I feel like it kind of... It's like that Jason Isbell song, if we were vampires, if you, you know, if you, uh, if you never die, then you never like if nothing matters and nothing matters in the long run. Right. Uh, And and I kind of feel uh, if I had to kind of put my finger on uh, my problem with the the way the multiverse narratives go, it would be that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. When they when they started inching toward the multiverse, I got very nervous and I said, I think pretty much exactly what you are, which this removes all the stakes.
2: yeah yeah I guess that's what I'm saying yeah Um, and and like I said the multiverse has existed in comics for a long time and I don't know why I'm more willing to accept it in a comic run (laughs) than I am in in a movie Uh, maybe comics are just more disposable and and I'm not expecting that kind of like totality from them I I don't know it's a really good question
1: yeah well I guess I mean what you're saying is that if the death never mattered to begin with that's very different than the death is real the death matters you know this is a this is a death this is a death that ends death you know yeah. um, versus this is a you know none, none of these deaths are really real none of, that, none of it it's just a it's just a reset you know there's a reset button that takes <laughs> yeah. it all back yeah, you and know, there are exceptions in the
2: MCU, of course, like Black Widow, um, like that one seemed to be final, right? And, and there were, like, real real stakes involved with that one in, in Iron Man. There are exceptions, but...
0: Especially after Scarlett I mean, Johansson criticized the company for not giving her enough money. Yes. They probably won't be bringing <laughs> or more, that character back.
2: They're more willing to make it final. <laughs> so, but anyway. But, yeah, and so it, it, I... I feel like i've got this on a a tangent i apologize for that but um shows nothing but
0: tangents danny
2: i was gonna (laughs) say have you listened to our show (laughs) but the the, uh uh, the comparison the 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 hold up big hero six which is kind of like uh, a kid's version of an mcu movie and as much as those aren't kids movies um it really helps me kind of see a contrast that's kind of interesting and and whereas i think it works a lot better here than it does in most of those movies
1: i i agree that it works i'm gonna push this on a different different direction of tangent if you don't mind um so robot deaths and resurrections <laughs> um i feel like this one rates pretty high not as high as wally's i feel like wally is the top um c-3po's is maybe down a little lower <laughs> wait see, <laughs> when does c-3po die uh in uh in um, Empire Strikes Back, and then Chewbacca has to put them back together. That's
0: right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> I don't count that as him dying. <laughs> yeah. No, How
1: about I, the Iron I, yeah, Giant.
0: That's that's oh, the one. Yeah, this reminds that. me of.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good one. I didn't. I hadn't thought about that. Hmm. Yeah, the, the self-sacrificial death of the robot, you know, so like, uh, if I'm
2: thinking of rogue one, now that we're talking about this and the, the battle bot that dies with everybody else. And that by Alan Tudyk. doesn't get,
0: Oh, is that right? Yeah.
2: Uh, wow. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> that's Crazy. Wow. Um, but yeah, it I mean that when he doesn't get resurrected, right? And he he maintains like uh, I don't know, I think it kind of deepens that character in a lot of ways. Um yeah, interesting.
1: I will say I had a real proud father moment on this one because my my daughter totally called it. She was like oh, he's going to use his fist to push her out of the... Like, I mean, way... Like, when they're, like, entering the portal, she's calling the whole <laughs> end of the movie. <laughs> like, oh, he's not coming back out. He's going to sacrifice himself, and he's going to use the fist to push push her out. Maybe push, she's just yeah, seen
0: Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2.
1: Yeah, maybe. So.
0: <laughs> they, like, the MCU really mined this for plot and detail. Like, because the, the Quantum <laughs> Realm comes from this movie. They don't call it the yeah. Quantum <laughs> Realm, but it's basically the Quantum Realm. Yeah, um no, the nanobots that make up Black Black Panther and Iron Man's suits in in um in uh Infinity War. Mm-hmm. Like that, that comes from here. The ending of That's Guardians two. I'm sure there's more.
2: Yeah. My friend of mine really doesn't like Marvel movies, and um, and he always says they're always about something falling out or something sucking things into the sky.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> that comes from this too, That's right.
0: Yeah, it does. I have to say that their plan at the end, like so they're going for the Kabuki mask, and then all of a sudden they decide the easier thing to do is to just destroy hundreds of thousands of nanobots. That, that, that was a weird, uh, a weird flex as the young people say. <laughs> like that is demonst- like you, You've already gotten the mask from him once. It, it took you like, you know, five minutes. It wasn't, it wasn't that big of a deal. I get that he has more nanobots now, but the fact that he has more nanobots now means probably still the better move is to go for the mask.
2: Spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the mask, I mean, it, I, I, I guess I should have thought more of it, but the symbolism of the villain choosing a kabuki mask as his, as his cover is interesting in the world of, uh, sort of like a hybridized American Japanese culture. Um, and so I, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on on that kind of costume choice or not.
0: I don't. Uh, why don't you, uh, why don't you give us your thoughts? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, like I said, I, I didn't really have any. I just it kind of occurred to me that, you know, there is a kind type of critic who would label that "quote unquote" problematic, right, uh, <laughs> or something, right? And uh, but uh, but I I don't I don't know. I feel like um, um, I don't know what to make of it actually because it's not a, a Japanese character who's um, donning the Japanese, uh, you know, theatrical outfit there. But um, it's an interesting choice for him to do that, and I, I don't, I don't. Maybe if I knew more about kabuki, I would, uh, I would have a good answer, but I don't have one.
0: Yeah, and I don't, I don't know that much about kabuki either. Hmm. It does nah. seem like Japanese culture is San Francisco culture, though. It would be, it's less like living mm. in San Francisco now and adopting the kabuki mask than it would be like living in Tokyo as a white person and adopting yeah. the kabuki mask but like you i mean i find the kind of cultural appropriation car a tedious one yeah it's
2: just yeah for me that's <laughs> that end right yeah so um yeah I'm, I'm not just to be clear i'm not making that argument i just uh i'm i don't know i shouldn't have thought on the fly no now i'm stuck <laughs> i hung myself out to dry here yeah <laughs> Yeah,
1: it is a, uh, just a plot contrivance because he really he wants um what's the what's the rich guy's name the, I mean the CEO guy oh Ca- Cray? Cray yeah Cray or whatever yeah whatever it is um you know Robert Callahan wants him yeah wants Alistair Cray that's what it is yeah so Robert Callahan wants Alistair Cray to know it's him you know um because that the, otherwise the revenge is is not worth anything i can't remember he he must reveal himself to him at some point i kind of that, he does that's yeah at, a at bit, the um worried to me at the but, end
0: he 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 takes his mask off and or he doesn't take it off but he he tells him that he tells him what it's about that this is about what's the girl's name abigail
1: yeah uh that sounds right yeah yeah, so so it's really it's just a bit of a plot contrivance for for us watching the movie and for the characters in the movie to not know who he is until he's ready to reveal it. You know, like it's, I, I think it's it looks a little creepy and it's it's got a Japanese <laughs> thing, you know, and it and it hides who he is until the end so they can reveal it and everybody's surprised. You know, like I, I think uh, you're that to me that's probably all it is.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if I. I'm just desperate to overread something. Stop <laughs> 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 point in the summer. You're on the, the right show, Danny. That's, that is what we do here. <laughs> I haven't done this in front of a class for so long, I'm desperate. <laughs> uh, but, uh, like, you know, I. If I'm right, Kabuki Theater is silent, uh, is it my true? is that right? And um, and yeah, he does remain utterly silent about his intentions until the end, and so, I mean, you could make something of that if you were an obnoxious English professor, which I gladly or hopefully am not. So.
0: <laughs> you gladly, hopefully, are not. <laughs> I, I
2: first thought gladly, but then I thought maybe I am, and so hopefully I'm not. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, you're closer to it than either me or Josh, that's for sure. <laughs> Did we want to talk about any of the other vocal performances? We talked about um, Scott Adsit a little bit. Um, it's a pretty big well, cast.
2: Yeah, the guy who plays, uh, is it Frank? Is that his name? Uh, the rich Fred. kid? Fred, sorry. Um I mean, he's obviously problematic <laughs> the actor. Uh, as soon as I heard his voice, I mean, it's a great comedic kind of surfer dude voice. Uh, and he sort of plays this kind of shaggy-like character in the group. Um, and it turns out he's super rich and, um, and has all these resources at hand, you know. But, um, but you're suggesting that
0: T.J. Actor... Miller, the voice actor, is himself a terrible human being? Well,
2: I think he's there's credible accusations. <laughs> about,
0: well, there's all sorts him. of credible accusations, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's so, a section like, on his <laughs> Wikipedia page called controversies and legal issues. Yeah, it's
2: like, it's like half of his like, Wikipedia page, isn't it? Right. <laughs> um, so, but it's a very fun performance, and like I brought up Shaggy on purpose because it really does. I mean, he reminds me of that kind of like silly member of the group, right? Um, that kind of like brings levity to uh, uh, everything. Um, but I immediately recognized his voice and, and kind of knew that he had gotten in a lot of trouble. And so that's kind of too bad for future reception of this movie. Um, but yeah, but I, I did think it was a, an interesting, um, like funny performance.
1: This is even, a real stupid... It I, I didn't think about this until you were, were saying that, but this is a real Scooby-Doo plot, right down to yep. you know pulling the mask off the bad guy. Yep. <laughs> it really is. You've even got the dog.
0: <laughs> You've got Wasabi as uh, as Fred, ironically, whereas uh-huh. Fred is Shaggy. Honey Lemon as uh, as Velma, maybe. Gogo is <laughs> Daphne. I don't know how you I don't know how you would you would uh, throw that out exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that really, really works, actually. Wow. Um. <laughs> I was, uh,
0: I was planning on coming in with the hot take that this was a stealth adaptation of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, but I could, I just could not make it happen. <laughs> I really wanted it to be an adaptation of Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> it is for the first like fifteen minutes, and then the brother dies, and you know, at that point, without Eleanor Dashwood, how do you have Sense and Sensibility? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really liked uh, Damon Wayans as Wasabi. I mean, Damon yeah. Wayans Jr., excuse me, as Wasabi. Um, yeah, he plays the same character he plays in everything, but um, he does it well. Yeah,
1: I yeah. agree. He was, he was the other one who came to mind for me, too. Like, he's just, his comedic timing is really good. It is, you know, uh, just, yeah, very, very well done as a character.
2: And I guess one thing I really liked about this movie a lot of animated movies, I don't know, I get kind of bothered by casting, like, really famous celebrities where they just do their shtick, and, and you know, you recognize Chris Pratt's voice, right? And and so, um, like, none of these actors are, like, household names. I mean, they're recognizable, and, and if you follow it, if you look into it, like, oh, I remember this person from that. Um, but none of them are, like, um, big-time movie stars, right? And so I really do feel like... It's not Eddie Murphy as Donkey yeah exactly and so they did like i guess like they're like dedicated voice actors in a way that you don't get from the importation of hollywood celebrity into voice acting just to leverage their celebrity right um and and i do feel like there's a there's a craft to their performances um across the board here
0: Yeah, I would uh, would agree with that.
2: Maya Rudolph is in it. I mean, she was one kind of like, uh, but she has a very small part, actually.
0: And she doesn't do that awful, annoying voice that Maya Rudolph ended up doing for everybody in her last couple (laughs) years on SNL. Yes. (laughs) Maya Rudolph became one of the most insufferable SNL uh, cast members ever. Even though I thought she was really good at first, she's good in this. Though. She plays the Anne, and it's a it's a high energy performance that I would never have thought was Maya Rudolph. Yeah. And then I mean yeah. Cromwell as uh, as Callahan. Uh, I mean, I, it's hard to do better than that, right? Yeah. And that that ends up being a pretty heavy part, so it's good that they had a you know a ser- a serious actor. To play him
2: can I bring up um, training montages uh, this movie has I think at least three uh, like <laughs> montage sequences um, that are like um, all very fun uh, there might even be four if you count the funeral as one uh, but yeah there's <laughs> like uh, like montage sequences like throughout this movie like in, in and it's almost like it becomes a parody of montage sequences <laughs>
1: It's true There's a lot of uh, there, there are a lot of them Another thing that the MCU Mind or Well I'm not sure which came first On that one Because I feel like the MCU Has a lot of uh, Those those types of Same montages And the uh, The building of equipment uh, the, the waving around of hands To move <laughs> To move things In the You know in the Holograms and stuff In order to put things together Like that's, that's, There's a whole lot of that
0: but there, yeah. the montages weren't pop song montages, am I right? There's, there's the one that's the there's the, the that Fallout Boy song. It's Terrible. Yeah, it is terrible. Even it starts off doing
2: I Had the Tiger, but then it like becomes a parody of that because it like stalls in the middle of it, right? Um,
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that.
0: maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, it, maybe, maybe they are pop song montages.
1: Yeah. Not Chicken well, not Little real, level, it's, though. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, nothing is chicken little level. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Josh's favorite Disney movie. <laughs> um, no, there's. I would say there's only the one pop song because, like Danny said, like they don't really go into Eye at the Tiger." It's just a hint of it. Yeah. Um, the Immortals song or whatever it's called though it's just I. It it pulled me out of it. I was not I was not feeling that one. Yeah, um,
0: music Yeah, I, I agree. Although I guess you know, in this kind of anime influenced movie, and and I would like you to talk about that in a minute, Josh. In in this kind of anime influenced movie, this this movie that's very much about and drawing from nerd culture, Fallout Boy makes a certain amount of sense, don't you think? Fallout Boy is nerd culture adjacent, anime adjacent.
1: Isn't that fair? Is it? I, I maybe. It, it could be. I don't know. I think whatever adjacent that is is not the adjacent that I move towards in my so, own. On the surface, other side so.
0: of it from you, huh? Right? Yeah,
1: I guess so. I don't I, I honestly I don't know that much about Fallout Boy. Are they I, are they nerd adjacent? They're definitely nerd adjacent. I, I feel like there
0: is a sizable overlap between fans of anime and fans of Fallout Boy, but I could be wrong, as I'm not really a fan of either one of them. Uh,
1: that's, <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I mean and Danny feel free to speak into this wherever you want because i i don't i don't honestly don't know um your where where you are on the on the anime scale. there there is definitely a a side of anime that's very like uh, techno industrial heavy music you know um, that's something like fallout boy and although they're neither of those things like they are they're i don't i don't know but I, you're the genre guy what 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 do you call fallout boy Michael as far as genre why
0: emo would you would you say like emo pop
1: oh maybe I don't know yeah I guess I don't know I don't listen to enough fallout boy <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't either I like that one <laughs> well, song I Do listen to enough fallout boy which is not that's that's exactly <laughs> I feel like I like emo but I did not like this I did not like Fallout boy at all so maybe maybe I'm also on the other end of the emo adjacent stuff you know um well, let's talk. Yeah, let's talk like,
0: about something that we can we can talk about without uh, without dismissing too much, which is like visually, this owes a lot to anime, right?
1: Absolutely, I would say so. Yeah, I think it's very much in that sort of like, um, yeah, just just in the the general like the futuristic world type thing, um, and I would say a lot of the pacing as well, like. Um, like we talked about earlier already, like the willingness to slow down is is I, I feel like a real feature of anime that's very different than like Western movies. Now here they use it almost always for comedic effect, which would not be the case in anime. But still, um, the fact that it's there at all, I would say, is is a is an anime um, tendency. And then just a lot of like the stylization of the characters themselves, especially once they get into their hero modes, are, are definitely like, definitely anime. Like, I mean, Honey, uh, Honey Lemon, or what? What's her name? Honey um, Lemon. Yeah, Honey Lemon. Like her, her whole getup uh, with the you know the purse and all that stuff. You know, the super, super long legs, all that. I mean, I, I yeah, she she she's like stepped right out of a, a manga comic book for sure. Yeah, I, Do you have more to add to that, Danny?
2: You know, I am like almost completely ignorant about anime. Like, I, I really have no kind of experience with it at all. So I'll leave it to you guys.
0: Yeah, and I, I have I have very little. I have enough to to look at this and say, okay, obviously they are drawing on anime traditions that I don't have access to. Mm-hmm.
1: <sighs> yeah, I would say I, that's that's a that's a real real good call. Although I read a really interesting article the other day about like, uh, from the, there's a newsletter that I subscribe to called, um, animation obsessive. And, uh, they are talking about how anime has been so influential for so long within movie making at this point, that it's almost like everything has been influenced by anime, you know, yeah. like it's almost, yeah. it's, a, it's hard at this point to even draw it out. But I would say that this movie in particular does, you know, purposely pull on some of those tropes, um, in ways in and from from farther afield than what we usually see i feel like in in the movies that we normally see we see a lot of um miyazaki influence but this i feel like is more like the wider world of anime um you know pokemon and uh you know uh and i'm blanking on on some of my you know the really influential um outside of studio Ghibli stuff right now, but um, some of that other stuff is, is obviously very, uh, very, very much part of the visual makeup of this movie.
2: I felt like um, Fred, a lot of his actions when he was a superhero um, were very like um, power ranger, like, <laughs> yes.
1: That yeah. Happened, so, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Which is not anime, but it's definitely like, yeah, it's that's the, that, that's, that's more than anime adjacent. That's like anime came come to life, you know.
0: Every time you talk about anime I think I need to I need to watch at least some Miyazaki and then I never do it. One of these days I will.
1: Yeah. We'll walk through we'll watch them together but not uh record it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, eventually you guys are gonna run
2: out of uh, Disney movies for this show.
0: Uh, Not eventually. It's it's like (laughs) six. We're six movies from the end or something right now.
1: Yeah, and then we'll be back once a year (laughs) forever for the rest of our lives. No, I think we did at one point talk about potentially, you know, doing Studio Ghibli or the Miyazaki films or something. But I think at this point, Michael and I are more on the, uh, we want to we want to move away from pop culture. <laughs> yeah, so.
0: we've been talking about doing um, fairy tales or folk tales. It would just it'd just be a matter of how to pick which ones we were doing and like how many to do per episode. I don't know. We've got a few more months to think about it. We'll yeah. do which the movies we have left, and then we probably should do some sort of big retrospective episode where we we talk about the project, because we've been doing this for, what, four years, five years?
1: Yeah, something like that.
2: It's amazing.
0: Not as long as you've been doing your show, Danny.
2: Too long. Ask the, <laughs> ask the listeners.
0: And uh, <laughs> you've been doing your show for as long as I've been doing Christian Humanist. I mean, a Christian Humanist <laughs> podcast has got to be one of the longest podcast longest running podcast still quote unquote on the air.
1: Although I, mean, I, would I, think I so. guess
0: last year we released two or three episodes and I wasn't on any of them,
1: but <laughs> yeah. we'll be back soon. Oh, yeah. You guys were early to the game. That is, that is definitely true. You guys are trendsetters. That's why I've made
0: so way. much money off of podcasting. <laughs> I'm independently wealthy. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You live in a mansion like Fred's.
0: D- Danny once introduced me at a conference to somebody as the inventor of the podcast, which <laughs> has haunted me ever since.
2: Did I say that? I have no memory of that. You were making
0: fun of me. I think you introduced me to uh, Jim Wildeman, actually that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. Great. <laughs> Anyway, do we have anything else to say about Big
1: Hero Six? I was going to say one thing. Um, it, I feel like we haven't done the uh, the in the early episodes. I feel like we always had a highfalutin moment, which usually came from you. But uh, I wanted to try my hand at one today. So <laughs> um, I was listening to uh, Bishop Barron today, and uh, he was he was um, citing James Joyce, and he said. Uh, and I couldn't find – I couldn't track down the actual quote, but this is the way Bishop Barron said it. He said, uh, the only real intellectual option on the table is between scholasticism and nihilism. And I feel like that's uh, that's heroes at, at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> like He's in nihilism, <laughs> and then he uh, is forced to reckon with that and chooses scholasticism.
0: <laughs> yeah, by a certain uh, definition of scholasticism, yeah. I did find myself yeah, that, wondering what he wants to go to this school for at all, given that he can already create this incredible technology. That's, like, what's yeah, he going to learn?
2: In his basement, he doesn't even need the resources of the school. I had the same question, actually, yeah.
0: And Why they, does the school even exist? Well, maybe maybe <laughs> they teach nothing but, like, ethics classes and stuff like that, in which case, yeah, it would be really good for him to go. Because Callahan makes that big deal about Cray not having any principles. So maybe – we don't actually see a class happening maybe all the classes are just ethics of technology
1: yeah it could be because he says when he first meets Callahan he he says to him uh, you know something he quotes oh you're the, the Callahan who wrote you know whatever the laws of, of robotics or whatever so maybe, maybe Callahan is, is a bit like the Isaac Asimov of this universe you know mm. comes up with these principles for what robots can and cannot do
2: you know, I did also I had a plot point puzzle myself. It's like, so if the the CEO guy basically, for all intents and purposes, killed his daughter, they have a remarkably cordial relationship at the beginning of this movie. She <laughs> 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 like, yeah.
0: would think there'd be a little bit of tension more so than there was. You'd think uh, Craig probably wouldn't argue with them <laughs> for fear that he would bring up the fact that he killed his daughter. It's like, I do, too, have scruples. I, I think I would be like, oh, yes, sir, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, they, they easily could have layered in some predictions or some um, foreshadowings for, for the plot twist. All they would have had to do was at the funeral scene say, oh, at least he's with his daughter now. You mm. know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. like, just just make a reference to him having this daughter who died tragically, good point.
2: Maybe kabuki theater doesn't work like that, Michael. Did you ever think of that?
0: <laughs> I, I, did, I did think of that, yeah. I used to. There was some kabuki play I used to teach when I taught history of drama, and now I can remember neither the principles of kabuki nor
2: even the title
0: of that play. I'm a fraud.
2: I obviously know nothing about kabuki, so it's okay. <laughs> I know that David
0: Byrne wears the suit, right?
2: <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs>
0: Though, i liked this movie i thought there were some um i thought there were some plot holes but nothing like frozen which which you know when we rewatched frozen last month i felt like i discovered that you could drive a large truck through the center <laughs> of that movie <laughs> this one this one had plot holes but not any more than the average action movie would i
1: think mm-hmm. i think maybe even less like i felt like uh you know, we've been we've been referencing the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I think rightly throughout this movie. And I think, you know, a lot of those MCU films, when you when you stop to think about them for a minute, uh, you know, it, it kind of spoils it. Like it kind of ruins the effect of the whole thing. But yeah, uh, but this one, I feel like, you know, we we had a pretty good conversation here, and it's you know it's it's still a good movie. So.
2: It's a very good movie, yeah, and uh, and the plot holes are like not appalling, at least they're not insulting to my intelligence. Um, unlike in the, the new Thor movie, where there's... <laughs>
0: remember Danny began our conversation today by saying he wasn't as critical of movies as he used to be. <laughs> but get this point: in in New Asgard.
2: After the events of uh, Thanos and Infinity War and all that, there is an ice cream place called Infinity Cones. <laughs> and, like in the world that this takes place in, that's like having an, uh, a Holocaust ice cream. Yeah, it'd be like it would track. be like going going to the
0: uh, that great German breakfast place, the v- Luftwaffels. <laughs>
2: yes, exactly. It's like that, that's just. The, you're not even taking yourself seriously when you do that. I'm sorry. Okay, but no, this movie was great. I, I totally agree. Now we just
0: now we just need to wait for the live action Baymax to show up in the MCU. Just, I, maybe maybe in Quantum Mania in the the new Ant Man movie, he'll, I, he'll, he'll reappear from I, the quantum realm.
2: I'd be there for that. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> All right.
1: Well, anything else for you guys?
2: I am good. I really enjoyed talking with you guys about this movie. Thanks for uh, putting it on my radar again. It was great.
0: Thanks so
1: much for coming on, Danny. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, it, was, it was great having you. Well, our press liaison is Christian Philippic. We're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and christianhumanist.org. Um, and Danny, what's, where, where should we direct people for you? Yeah. Um,
2: I, gosh what's our castos thing for the show now um <laughs> <laughs> don't you have a
0: website danny yeah i thought no, you had I got rid of... of it oh um, i thought you had got like got an authorly or something like that oh, got... oh, yeah, i
2: do have an authory page um a o no how do you spell author a u t h o r y uh and if you just look up my name uh, there that authory Dan, uh, slash Danny Anderson or Danny I don't know and that has yeah. everything
0: you write right I'm from on your on from your short stories to your cultural <laughs> criticism
1: I <laughs> him on Twitter okay there you go uh, <laughs> so you can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at before they were live at gmail.com dot uh, or you can find Danny on Twitter. Uh, We want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going, including the ongoing uh, episodes of uh, Sectarian Review with Danny Anderson, uh, one of my favorite podcasts. So, uh, Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So, for Danny Anderson, Michael Farmer, I'm Joshua altman chauffeur. I cannot deactivate until you say you are satisfied with your care. (laughs) I am satisfied with my care.